Our Father, it is our joy now to open the Word of God. This is the only source of revelation we have that speaks to us the intricacies and the details of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation that we have that introduces us to Christ, and it certainly is the revelation we have that tells us how to live for Christ. And so with that in mind this morning, we ask you to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law, in your word, and we would pray for Christ's sake and for our own edification. Amen. Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and most of the time at Grace Bible Church, almost probably 95% of the time, we're going to engage in what we call consecutive exposition, where we are going verse by verse through a particular book or passage. We have spent a number of months in the Gospel of John, and we finished John chapter 12, and we've been taking a break now to begin to gather our thoughts about ecclesiology, about the study of the church and what the church is to be, and that is in preparation for our upcoming joyful generosity campaign. And so we want to understand the church, and so we've been doing this for a number of weeks. Now, generally speaking, churches who have at least a fair number of true believers, of regenerate people, and and churches generally have some that are not, but if there's a fair number of true believers we have a natural desire to make a difference. We want to do something, and that is often the phrase we used, make a difference. Now, some have gotten off track, and they define make a difference as some sort of social justice issue. That is not the point of the gospel at all, and they've gotten off. But others, with at least some maturity, they have a a basic and a correct definition of making a difference. We could say it's something like teaching Christians to obey the Bible, and teaching non-Christians the gospel to bring them to faith in Christ. And that's a basic understanding. That's a reasonable set of goals to have. But if we want to get a little bit more refined, if we want to sharpen this down a little bit to, to hone our thinking, we might say it this way, that we want to produce Christ-likeness in the believers so that they will in turn spread the gospel to the unbelievers and see conversions in Christ happening. And I think any church worth their salt wants to see the lost saved. And certainly countless ideas and methods have been put forward over the years to accomplish this task. But there are, at Grace Bible Church, three important philosophical ideas that we always want to hold to. The first one is exaltation. That our first and greatest duty is to worship God together. What you are doing right now in gathering together as the saints of God, this is the most important thing we do. We also have the ideal of equipping, not only exaltation, but equipping. We want to train and equip believers to know the word of God and know the God of the word. But what should be the logical result of that, of exaltation and equipping? Well, it should be our third philosophical ideal, and that is evangelism. Evangelism, to to rally this worship and this equipping into evangelistic opportunity. The Church of Philadelphia received high marks and commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, they weren't a large or influential church. But nevertheless, Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is an evangelistic church. They're the church of the open door. They were faithful to proclaim the gospel. 
The church at Thessalonica was commended by Paul for their broad spreading of the gospel to the regions of Achaia and Macedonia. But the original church, the first church, with a high concern for those without Christ, had to be, of course, the church that we've been studying for the last six weeks or so, the Church of Jerusalem, otherwise known as the First Church of Jesus Christ. And they're going to help us polish off our series. We're looking at our gift to Jesus, how we at Grace Bible Church can present to Christ a church that is worthy of high marks. And so far we have looked at a well-ordered church, a reliant church, a praying church, a sacrificial church, and a loving church. And I save this for last because this really should be the logical outworking of a healthy church, an evangelistic church, an evangelistic church, a church which proclaims what the Greek says, the euangelion, the good news, where we get the word evangelism. And the whole point of this series really has begun to, to prepare your heart with sound ecclesiology before we embark on our campaign our capital campaign, of joyful generosity, which is our response to God's grace, because we have to understand that a building campaign for its own sake is not the point. The whole point is to bring people into the kingdom. Now, this is a topical message, which means that you might have to work a little harder to, to follow this. So I'm going to try to make it easier for you. Let's divide this into two basic parts to think about our, to, to organize our thinking here. The first part is the qualities of an evangelistic church. And we'll use the church at Jerusalem as an example. The qualities of an evangelistic church. And then the second part we'll do this morning, we'll call the foundations of an evangelistic church. The foundations of an evangelistic church. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, just saying, let's focus on outreach is not actually effective. In fact, I'm going to show you why that's not effective. So first, let's do the first part, the qualities of an evangelistic church. And I'll give you three of them. First of all, the first quality of an evangelistic church we'll just call an unaltered gospel proclamation. An unaltered gospel proclamation. And what I'd like to have you do is look with me at the very first sermon in the church by the Apostle Peter, and we'll just take a quick theological survey of what he says in this message. Acts 2, verse 22, and we'll just work our way down this very quickly. Acts 2, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This is affirming the deity of Christ. The very next verse, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is affirming not only the deity of Christ, but the sovereignty of God over his salvation plan. The next verse, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is now affirming the, the resurrection of Christ. So already we have the deity of Christ, the sovereignty of God over salvation, the resurrection of Christ. Look with me at verse 33. Skipping down to verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So in this one verse, we have the affirmation of the ascension of Christ to heaven and the sending of the promised Holy Spirit to indwell those who believe. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. This is affirming the supremacy of Christ, that he is Lord over all. 
And so what do you do with this information? Well, the final piece of the puzzle here, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is affirming the need for repentance, for turning away from your, your allegiance and your love for your sin and turning toward your love for Christ. Look at another sermon by Peter, Acts chapter 3. And we'll just do this in survey fashion. Acts 3, beginning in verse 14. And he's now preaching to people who hate them. And Peter's preaching to men who crucified Christ. He says, but you denied, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. He affirms that Jesus Christ is creator God and that he was raised from the dead. Look with me at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He affirms that Jesus is the object of all the Old Testament prophecies of a coming suffering Messiah. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. He affirms there the necessity of repentance once again. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. The coming judgment of all who will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is affirmed here by Peter. And so he, he's not altering the message at all. He's not saying, come back next Sunday and we'll give you a free backpack if you bring an unbeliever with you. He's not trying to attract with any worldly means. Look again, Acts chapter 4. When Peter was confronted by the religious leaders of Jerusalem, he preached again. Acts 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. He's speaking of the miracle that just happened. He did that through Christ. What does that affirm? The death and the resurrection of Christ. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the object of all the Old Testament prophecies of a coming Messiah. And he mentions here the prophecy in Psalm 118. And in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is affirming the fact that in Christ alone is eternal life. And what does this make us think about? It makes us think about the night Jesus was betrayed and he told his disciples, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so here is this this bold proclamation with an undiluted message. Absolutely unadulterated message. Now, we could keep going through all the sermon records and acts and you would just find the same thing over and over again, an unaltered presentation characterized by boldness and even to the point of placing oneself in danger. Stephen would soon die for his faithfulness to proclaim the unaltered gospel with all of its requisite elements. He proclaimed the deity of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Christ is the only way. And the people... We're very simply bringing their friends and family to hear the gospel such that the church was gaining members daily. In the church in Jerusalem, they didn't have an evangelism program. They didn't have a system. It was just the fiber of who they were. They just proclaimed the gospel. 
So the first quality of an evangelistic church, an unaltered gospel presentation. The second quality of an evangelistic church, we'll just call an expectation of converts. An expectation of converts. Now, some of you among us are entrepreneurs. You either have or you do own your own business. Can you imagine going into a business where you have a guaranteed profit, a guaranteed return on your investment? Well, I can imagine it because I did. You know how I did that? I became a minister of the gospel of Christ. I am in the soul business. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. That's exciting to me to understand that, that the success of the church has been guaranteed. The faithful presentation of the gospel gives you and gives me the right to expect converts, to expect new believers, maybe slower, maybe faster than you imagined. I doubt that when Peter stood up and preached his first sermon that he thought that 30 minutes later he'd be dealing with a church with 3,000 people. Maybe it's faster, maybe it's slower. Maybe you won't even know about it until eternity. All the people you've proclaimed the gospel to, you don't know who got saved and who didn't, but you should expect converts. And as a church, we don't use gimmicks. We don't try to be attractive to the unbeliever. That's ineffective. It's, it's inane. We just give the life-giving message of the gospel. But I want to just have you chart with me the progress of the Jerusalem church. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to go through this quickly. I take no responsibility for paper cuts. That's on you. Acts 2.41. We're just going to chart the progress. Acts 2.41. So those who received his word were baptized, and those and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Go a few verses later to verse 47. That the people were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Skip over to chapter 4, verse 4. We continue charting the progress of the Jerusalem church. Chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That's just the men. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. You think we're doing well? And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Chapter 6, verse 7. I can hear the pages turning. You're doing great. Chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came, became obedient to the faith. Skip over all the way to chapter 9, verse 31. And this is extremely important because now what's going to happen when the church is under persecution, when now lives have been lost and families have been displaced and people are running for their lives literally because of their faith in Christ? Is the whole thing going to fold? Is everything going down? Is the church going to fail? No. Chapter 9, verse 31. So the church continued... So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Wait a minute. What's happening here? Now the church isn't just in Jerusalem. It's in Judea. That's the, that's the area around Jerusalem. It's, in Gal it's around Galilee. It's in Samaria. All these areas to the north. The gospel is spreading. It continues to go. Look with me at chapter 11. 
chapter 11, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The end of verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. And one more, chapter 12, verse 24. Right at the end of chapter 12, second to last verse. And this really summarizes the church in Jerusalem. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Do you see an upward tick here? We do. We see an expectation here. As a matter of fact, the gospel in Jerusalem would continue to spread throughout the known world at this same rate. In, in just a couple of decades, persecution would begin to heat up tremendously about 64 AD with Emperor Nero. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop for hundreds of years, all the way until Emperor Constantine in 313 AD issued the Edict of Milan, which for the first time in hundreds of years made Christianity legal. Guess what? churches started doing when Christianity wasn't illegal anymore as soon as they weren't having to meet secretly they weren't dying by the thousands guess what they did well the edict in Milan was named such because it was crafted and issued in Milan you know what the church in Milan did months later they built a church building a huge one they said we're going to build a place in which we will worship the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome over the next few decades, as many as 20 church buildings went up. Buildings dedicated solely to the worship of Jesus Christ were constructed. We're not talking about little metal buildings that you order online here. These were stone, massive structures to honor the Lord. As a matter of fact, the Reformation of the 16th century changed church architecture. Did you know that? The, the organized church had long since succumbed to the heresies of the Roman Catholic religion, but with the revival of the, of the biblical gospel, with the resurgence of the true biblical gospel of Christ, even the design of church buildings changed. For example, a typical Roman Catholic building has the altar as the front and center of the main feature in the, in the sanctuary because the elements of the Lord's table, or they call it the Eucharist, are believed by Catholics to give salvation through a human priest who is given power to absolve sin. That's heresy. But with the Reformation came a change in church building design. You know what became the center of the church now? The pulpit. Because the word of God gives the life-giving salvation of the Son of God through the revelation of God, the life-giving scriptures. And like the church of Jerusalem, a church which would put front and center the proclamation of the gospel should expect converts over time. Sometimes when some of you have uh, come to faith in Christ, you, you have told me, uh, wow, I never expected this. Like six months ago, I hated God. And now he loves me and I can't do anything but love him. We're not surprised by that. We see that happen all the time. Why? Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And we live in that joyful expectation. Let me give you a third quality of an evangelistic church, an unaltered gospel presentation, an expectation of converts, and one more, an obedience to Christ. An obedience to Christ. I would maintain that a church that doesn't care for the souls of the lost is a church to be pitied, a church to, be, to feel sorry for. They will be on the receiving end of Christ's stern rebuke that they ignored his final command on this earth, sometimes called the Great Commission. 
Now, the Great Commission is famously found, most famously found at the end of Matthew's gospel, but Jesus reiterates the command in Acts chapter 1. Look with me at Acts 1, beginning in verse 6. And I take you to this version of the Great Commission because it's important that these are the last words of Christ on earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, this is speaking of the 12 apostles, or the 11 rather, the 12 would come later. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The expectation is that Christ is going to restore Israel as a great and mighty kingdom. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, yes, I am going to restore the kingdom. I'm just not going to tell you when. But then hear the last words of Christ on earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, we should be very clear. This idea of fulfilling the Great Commission and being commission-minded, as some have said, this isn't lived out by simply starting an evangelism program in the church. That's not how we live it out. Those can be good, those can be helpful, but it can also provide a danger. And that is the danger of having the effect that 99% of the church members who aren't in the evangelism program can back up and say, yeah, we're an evangelistic church without actually participating. You don't really see an example in the New Testament of a church commissioning just a few people to do all the work of evangelism. We have an evangelism team at Grace Bible Church. You're looking at it. It is you. It is me. Now, make no mistake, I wish that we had many more teams put together. I pray for this. I pray for the Lord to raise up men not only to evangelize, but to lead others to do so as well. We pray for creative means to to share the gospel. Even now, the elders are working on a facility use policy with the express purpose of opening up more evangelistic opportunities, even in our own building. But I think that's really getting the cart before the horse if we're not careful. An evangelistic church is at its heart committed to obeying the Great Commission. We think about it. We talk about it. We live it. That we're to be light and salt and to sacrificially do what we can to spread the message of Christ. Listen, I don't preach week after week after week the sanctification and the Christ-likeness of your own souls just so that you can have a better life. We preach sanctification so that your life demonstrates Christ to others. Because how did, how did Jesus say that people would know the church? They would know his followers because of their behavior, how we love one another. So you see, you living a, a Christ-centered and altered life that is honoring to the Lord is not just about you having an easier life. It will make you have an easier life, but it's about being light and salt in the world, living that out. So the Jerusalem church demonstrated these qualities of an evangelistic church, an unaltered gospel presentation, an expectation of converts, and an obedience to Christ. But I want to have us spread our wings a little bit more. I want to look at the foundations of an evangelistic church. There there are foundations, concrete, if you will, that, that a local church has poured and cured, which lends themselves to to a natural and organic culture of evangelism. 
And without these foundations, ultimately the church with a genuine desire to to reach the lost, but they don't have these foundations, they're going to make several mistakes. First of all, they're going to redefine what it means to be lost as simply having problems that need to be solved. They're going to redefine the gospel as Jesus wanting to solve all of your problems. And they're going to redefine the mission of the church as getting people here so that you can meet Jesus who wants to solve all your problems. And so then we sink into the abyss of the seeker-friendly movement. So just saying, let's do an outreach program is like saying, let's stick this orange seed in the ground and start eating oranges. You have to have a foundation. There has to be a, a bedrock that we place the church upon. So I want to spend the remainder of our time really to close out our little series on ecclesiology on some foundations of an evangelistic church. There are many we could talk about. I started with 15. We'll go down to four. These are the foundations you need to support, you need to pray for, you need to be a part of. And I think really the fourth one we'll look at is the key. It is the fundamental foundation of an evangelistic church. So I'll save that one for last. I'm going to highlight a number of scriptures. I'm not going to have you turn to them because it will take too much time. The first foundation that we should strive for, we'll call this an understanding of spiritual warfare. An understanding of spiritual warfare. You're familiar with this passage, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are key words in here. Armor, schemes, the devil, we wrestle their cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. And keep this in mind, if you've been a Christian for even 50 years and you have been in prayer, Satan has still got 7,000 years on you as far as making spiritual war. And so we don't enter into this lightly. Who does the devil often go after? Two common targets that I've seen are primarily the spiritually weakest members of the church and the leaders of the church. Let me talk about both of those. First, the weakest members of the church. For example, if you succumb to bitterness, if you succumb to unfaithfulness to the Lord, if you don't take the word of God seriously, if, if being inconsistent in hearing the word of God or in fellowship to not take the idea of obedience to heart, of kind of playing church, playing Christian, dabbling, putting your foot in the water to kind of see what you think that makes you spiritually weak. It's going to weaken you. Some of you have had cancer and some of you have had to undergo treatment. You know what appointments you never miss? Cancer treatment appointments. Because you know that if you don't go, something bad's going to happen. And yet the weakest, precious ones among us may try to flutter through the Christian life with occasional prayer, a little bit of Bible, occasional attendance, maybe involvement, maybe not. You're playing with fire because the church will have undernourished and spiritually unhealthy members. And of course, one of the ways we're to combat this is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, that we're to help the weak. We're to come alongside them. Those who are stronger in the Lord are to put your arm around the weak and to, to bring them along, to pray for them, to alert them to spiritual dangers, to disciple them, to go through the scriptures with them. So the weakest members can be vulnerable to attacks of the evil one. But then the leaders can be vulnerable as well. When I graduated from seminary, we all wear these big, 
you know, these big black robes. I think we ought to wear white t-shirts with a big target on it because that's what's really happening here. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Now, this is the Apostle Paul, potentially greatest Christian ever. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. There's a war. One of the leaders in the early church, a ministry partner with Paul named Demas. He's mentioned warmly by Paul in Philemon and in Colossians, but in 2 Timothy 4, written later, Paul says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. He decided to go after the world. Of course, we continually hear of leaders in the church being taken down by sexual scandal and marital unfaithfulness. Leaders can be deceived by false doctrine and then teach it to hundreds or to thousands as they have not stayed faithful to the word of God as revealed. A scene I've witnessed several times in my own ministry, friends of mine in the ministry, is, is a good man taken out of the ministry because he has a wife who won't submit to him and he's put on the sideline. Satan can use the weight and the seriousness of ministry to discourage, to cause depression and anxiety. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. One of my heroes that I decided to quote every single week during this series, Charles Spurgeon, greatest preacher in England's history in the 19th century, he struggled mightily with depression. He would go for months with this cloud over him and yet just preach so faithfully. So how does Satan work? How does he work? Well, generally speaking, very subtly. He's not going to hit you straight on. Convincing a woman she deserves to have an affair because her husband is difficult. Convincing a man he has a right to gossip because he's trying to be, quote-unquote, helpful. Convincing a pastor that something other than the preaching of God's word is powerful. Convincing church members to not be at peace with one another, as commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5. His work can also come through a barrage of, of difficulties, of spiritual attacks from others. All, of course, we believe under the sovereign will and power of God. And yet we're called by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 to engage in spiritual warfare, to fight back, to use the word of God, to use prayer, to use our righteous behavior, to use our belief in the true biblical gospel and so forth. Now, you might be asking, what does an understanding of spiritual warfare have to do with being an evangelistic church? Well, because of his hatred of Christ, Satan hates followers of Christ. You cannot be neutral. You can't be neutral. There is another name for neutral people. They're called unbelievers. There's no such thing as a neutral Christian. And Satan will do all he can to minimize the number of people who come to faith. He'll do all in his power to cause suffering in the lives of those who are trying to be a gospel influence because the growth of the church is Satan's nemesis because every time one of you came to faith in Christ, he lost a citizen of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light gained a citizen. And so Satan loses ground. He loses ground when we sing the gospel because it encourages us and strengthens us. He loses ground when we read the gospel because it strengthens us and encourages us. He loses ground when we proclaim the gospel because it strengthens us and encourages us. By virtue of you showing up today, singing with all of your heart, listening right now, you're taking it to Satan at this moment. I love that. When I was seven, I asked my dad what spiritual warfare is because I heard the phrase and it scared me. And he said, well, 
It said something like it's, it's that you don't like Satan and you love God. So I thought spiritual warfare was going downward to Satan. My dad explained to me that is not spiritual warfare. It's funny, but it's not spiritual warfare. But this is serious business. Satan hates Grace Bible Church. I drove by a building with the name church on it on Stockdale Highway, a Unitarian church. He loves that church because they've obeyed all of his commands. But he hates Grace Bible Church. We are his nemesis. By the way, we've issued and will continue to issue a call to pray for our joyful generosity campaign. Their prayer meeting we're having a week from today at five o'clock is not to pray for God to bring us money. It is to pray for God to protect us and to help us to be faithful to use the resources he's given us to drive a wedge in Satan's plan. That's what we're praying for. Historically, by the way, when churches go into building campaigns, two things happen. History has shown this. First of all, the members grow more into Christ's likeness. The new facility translates into gospel opportunities and the lost get saved. That is history that has been shown. The second thing that happens, spiritual attacks in the form of division, in the form of difficult life circumstances that are distracting, fear of the unknown, you name it. You name it. Why? Because Satan hates a church that's trying to do something for the gospel. For me, I know one of the greatest treasures I possess, and this thrills my heart, is the fact that so many of you pray faithfully for me and for our, for our leadership. This week, this week, I got to speak to one of you who reminded me our family prays for you every night, and that thrills me. That, that, puts, that puts a fire under me. So if we're to be evangelistic, we must have an understanding of spiritual warfare. Church of Jerusalem understood it. When Peter and John were arrested in Acts chapter 4, the church gathered together to pray. And you know what they prayed for? They said to grant to their leaders to, quote, continue to speak your word with all boldness. They didn't pray, please make sure that Paul and John are comfortable in prison. Please make sure they get good food. Maybe they prayed those things, I don't know. But the main thing they prayed was continue to speak the gospel. The second foundation we'll call the priority of preaching. The priority of preaching. Now, we've talked about this frequently in this series, but you, you can't get away from the central nature of preaching in the church. You, you can't avoid it. But now we relate it specifically to the work of evangelism. I mean, as we have read through Acts, the history of Acts basically is traced through the history of preaching, through the sermons. The great clarion call to the minister of the gospel is found in 2 Timothy 4, the faithful pastor lives by this creed, three simple words, preach the word. That's what we're to do. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and understanding. We are to preach. It's the Greek word keruso, which means to proclaim, to announce truth, to publicly uh, herald something. In fact, there's an Old Testament Hebrew uh, equivalent to this word, and it means to shout something. It's important but along with this duty to preach the word, to make the Bible the sole authority of life and practice, Paul told Timothy to do something else in his preaching. He said in verse 5 of 2 Timothy 4, do the work of an what? Evangelist. You know your Bibles. In fact, on either side of that command are two bookends to the preacher, endure suffering and fulfill your ministry. And in the middle, do the work of an evangelist. Meaning, 
that the preaching of the gospel brings challenges, it brings pain, it brings heartache, and that's part of the territory. Now, why is the priority of preaching foundational to an evangelistic church? What, what, what's the difference? What is the, the connection, rather? Well, throughout recent history, and we'll just arbitrarily say in the last hundred years, we've come up with all kinds of innovative ways to share the gospel. We've had basketball ministries, soccer ministries, music ministries. There is the ministry of feeding the hungry. I know of one church which has set up an entire food pantry and a warehouse with secondhand items to give away to those in need and provide gospel opportunities. We've come up with service-oriented ministries. I know of one church that has set up a full-service auto shop on the grounds of their church so that they can minister to the poorest among them and to their community with free auto repair. Historically, orphanages have been best run by the church. In fact, when governments got overly involved, the church started backing away. In the last century, innovations are, are seemingly endless. One article in Christianity Today suggested some very good ideas, but frankly, the title of the article disturbed me. The title is, Outreach and Evangelism, What Works Today? Well, I could have told you, the gospel does. Just like it always has. And to be perfectly honest with you, I would love it if our church could even be more intentional about that sort of programmatic evangelism, a more organized effort. We would love that. But historically, just looking back at 2,000 years of church history, how has the Lord generally moved to save the souls of the lost? It is through the preached word. The great American Puritan preacher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he was at the center of what church historians call the Great Awakening in the mid-18th century, where people by the thousands were coming to faith in Christ, and this was through preaching. His most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was part of this revival. Edwards preached this famous sermon on the topic of hell. He preached it more than once, and on one occasion, July 8, 1741, one historian writes this. Jonathan Edwards started a sermon that he did not finish. Such was the impact of his preaching that the people listening shrieked and cried out and the crying and weeping became so loud that Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. Instead, the pastors went down among the people and prayed with them in groups. Many came to a saving knowledge of Christ that day. And commenting on this, church historian Ian Murray, he wrote this, as spring passed into summer, 1741, no one could well keep track of the number of places that were also witnessing the revival. Churches, which in some cases had been cold and dry at the beginning of the year, were transformed before the end. It is astonishing, wrote Edwards, to see the alteration that there is in some towns where before there was but little appearance of religion. How did that happen? The church and preaching. Charles Spurgeon, greatest preacher of the 19th century, believed with all of his heart that the pulpit was the key to seeing the lost saved. He said, quote, that is why I preach. If there are so many fish to be taken in the net, I will go out and catch some of them. Because many are, are ordained to be caught, I spread my nets with eager expectation. Spurgeon was always eager to preach to the most people that he could, and he did so. In his 38-year ministry, 38 ministry, the Metropolitan Tabernacle welcomed 14,692 new members, 11,000 of them new converts because he preached the gospel. And in a day before radio and before the internet, he preached in person to over 10 million people 
in his lifetime. Another one of the heroes of the faith, someone who has preached from this pulpit, one of my own mentors as well, Dr. Steve Lawson, he was adamant that the heartbeat of the church's evangelism efforts begins at the pulpit. It begins with preaching. In his 34 years as a senior preaching pastor, he repeatedly said that he believes that 90% of the converts that he saw in his church were saved because of preaching. Now, we could do an entire church history lesson on the powerful impact of preaching in the church, and I could take hours to go through it because there's so much evidence. But let me summarize it this way. The greatest moves of God in history to save the lost have happened through the preaching of the word in the church. It's always been the case. And it's really a very simple system. And we're working the system right now. Here's the system. You, as church members, are hearing the word of God. You're growing into Christ-likeness, and therefore you're proclaiming the gospel to your circle of influence. You're also giving your resources to support those who preach the gospel. You're inviting people to church to hear the gospel, to be cleansed of their sin. People are being saved and being baptized to show their allegiance to Christ, and they, in turn, do the same thing. They're cleansed of their sin, they're baptized, and they go out, and bring people here. This is the ultimate rinse and repeat cycle. That's what we do. By the way, just as a side note, as you're praying for the effectiveness of Grace Bible Church, I don't think our current facility is set up to be very evangelistic, to be quite honest with you. We need a prayer room right off of the sanctuary, a place in private where a true seeker of the gospel can talk and pray with our members, with our counselors. We don't do emotionally manipulated altar calls, but we do want to provide an opportunity to respond to the gospel. I, I'm not going to say to you, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the life-giving, life-giving uh, spirit of God, be forgiven of your sin. And your question is, how do I do that? I'm not going to say, well, see ya. I hope you figure it out. How do you do that? Well, it's by faith and, and you want to speak to someone. Some of the most beautiful prayers I've ever heard, not a contrived sinner's prayer, but the prayer of a brand new believer who now possessing the spirit of God prays the gospel without ever having heard it except a minute ago. And we need a place to do that. Let me give you a third foundation of an evangelistic church, the purity of the church. The purity of the church. The church at Thessalonica, I'm sorry, the church at Thyatira, rather, was a decent church. It was an okay church with some decent believers. Jesus said to them in Revelation 2, verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But they had a fatal flaw. And it was a flaw that would lead them to be judged. And that is that they tolerated sin in their midst. They didn't deal with the impurities of the body. In this case, It was sexual immorality. The first command ever issued by the Lord Jesus Christ concerning the church happened in Matthew 18 before the church even existed. And it concerned the purity of the church. That those who persist in rebellion, persist in sinful opposition to the commands of Christ cannot partake in the fellowship of the body. About a year ago, 51 Sundays ago to be exact, I preached a message on the purity of the church and we identified three criteria that tells us that sin must be dealt with in our midst. The first one is observable sin. There's an outward manifestation that is repeated. 
The second criteria was serious sin, meaning that sin has continuous and major consequences impacting the life of others. And the third criteria was unrepentant sin, a a rebellious pattern of refusing to let go of the sin. This isn't a demand for sinless perfection. This isn't talking about the person that tries and fails and tries and fails. This is talking about the person that that says, I like my sin, I'm going to hold on to my sin, and you don't have anything to say about it. The idea of the purity of the church is addressed all over the New Testament. It's everywhere. As I've already mentioned, Jesus addressed it in Matthew 18, giving us a four-step church discipline and restoration process. But that's not the only option. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addressed a situation in which a member of the church was in an immoral relationship with his own stepmother. What was Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 5 to let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 5, he says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And in verse 9, he says, Purge the evil person from among you. How many steps is that? One. Paul uses that occasion also to remind them that anyone who has publicly called himself a brother or a sister, in other words, you have been baptized and you have publicly declared that I am a follower of Christ, and yet they continue to live a double life, He said in verse 9 and in verse 11, don't associate with people like that. Now, to be very clear, he's not talking about unbelievers who haven't professed Christ. He's talking about those who have publicly said, I am presenting myself as a follower of Christ, but I'm not going to change anything in my life. And he gives a list. Here's his list. The sexually immoral, the greedy, swindlers, idolaters, revilers, that means abusive, the drunkard. He adds to this list in chapter 6, people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He adds adulterers, people who practice homosexuality, thieves. Now, why in Matthew 18 do you have this slow four-step process, but in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, it's decisive, it's quick, it's fast? Well, for the church at Corinth, apparently they'd been boasting about how open-armed they are. We'll accept anyone. We'll take anyone. And Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Or put it in terms that we could understand, one drop of orange juice ruins the whole glass of milk? A little tolerated sin will dirty everyone. Sometimes when I do counseling and somebody says, I'm struggling with this sin, but I don't think it's impacting anybody else, I can almost prove that wrong every time. Your sin is never just impacting you. It's always going to impact others. Just a quick survey, just to prove to you that this is not an isolated thing here. 2 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7 gives instruction to restore one who repents in humility. That's fabulous. Galatians 6, 1 speaks of warning a brother caught in a sin pattern. Ephesians 5, 11 tells us to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says to admonish the idle. It's a Greek word that means the disorderly, the insubordinate. 2 Thessalonians 3 says to keep away from a troublemaker. 1 Timothy 1.20 instructs the church to immediately get rid of doctrinal troublemakers. In other words, if I walked in on a Sunday school class and somebody was teaching heresy, my job is not to say, let's talk about it. It is you're fired and leave until further notice. You will not do that here. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 warns that some will have the appearance of godliness. 
but they're actually, quote, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, and the list goes on and on. In other words, people will fool you. And once that sin is exposed, it must be dealt with. One of the ministries that the pastors and elders and other mature believers in our church are called upon to perform is the ministry of biblical counseling, of applying the word of God to the problems of life. And counseling very often, I'm going to say 95% of the time, does something. It exposes sin. It exposes sin. And the counselee has two choices. The only two choices available to any of us. Choice number one, in humility, begin to work on that area of sanctification and obedience with an attitude of thankfulness and joy and relief. How does it feel when you're obeying the Lord? It feels great. It feels terrific. But the other option, in pride, push back, make excuses, blame him, blame her. It's her fault. Come out swinging because he or she will not listen to biblical instruction. And now counseling that person becomes like trying to catch a greased pig. You can't do it. But in either case, the church will be purified because either the sin is being worked on or ultimately the sinner will be dismissed and the church is purified because Christ wants a purified bride, which is, by the way, the point of this entire series. You know, it almost always is going to bring church elders and leaders under fire and criticism is going to be when we stand up to sin in the life of someone that others thought was leading a godly life. Look, in my own ministry over the years and our own elders and our pastors here, we've had to deal with secret sins. These are things we have dealt with here. Drug abuse, habitual lying, theft, slander, love of money over people, pornography, idolatry of everything imaginable, domestic verbal abuse, domestic physical violence, drunkenness, marital unfaithfulness, child abuse. And that was just this week. I'm just kidding. It wasn't all this week. (laughs) But the church of Jesus Christ, we're we're being made into Christ-likeness. There's a woodworking tool called a jointer. And its job is to take a piece of wood with a lot of rough spots on it and you pass it over the blade that continually smooths it and you pass it over once and you look at it and there's still some bumps left you pass it over again you pass it over again until it doesn't look anything like it used to but it's smooth and it's perfect the preached word of God the fellowship of the saints the accountability we have with one another the confrontation of sin the dealing with our own sin patterns it is putting us over the jointer and looking nope not like Christ yet look nope not like Christ yet nope not like Christ yet that's what we're to do Now, do you want church leaders to turn a blind eye to those things? No. Then we become Thyatira. We are to come alongside and help and instruct and counsel. Now, what in all of creation does this have to do with being an evangelistic church? It's very simple. A church which does not value its own purity really doesn't value the true gospel message. The gospel message has at its core the idea of repentance. And if we say, welcome to the church, anyone who wants to look like a Christian, act like a Christian, but not actually be saved, we are disregarding the word of God, and that's not really evangelism, is it? It's not really evangelism. Let me give you one more foundation of an evangelistic church, and I saved this for last because I, I said that this is the real key. This is the secret. If you don't remember anything else, remember this one. This is what makes evangelism organic, makes it natural, makes it surprisingly joyful. 
And this foundation we'll call saturation in the biblical gospel. Saturation in the biblical gospel. Charles Spurgeon told the seminary students, quote, avoid a sugared gospel. Seek that gospel which rips up and tears and cuts and wounds and hacks and even kills, for that is the gospel that makes alive again. We ought to be saturated in the elements of the gospel through preaching in our small groups, in Sunday school, the books in our bookstore, certainly in our music. I, it was music to my ears, and we do this every week, but when Pastor Darren said, today we're going to sing the gospel, because it puts it in our hearts. Something that discourages me as a preacher is the fact that you will walk away from here not remembering what I said, but you'll be singing all the songs we sang. So in the end, Darren always wins every week. Because music that dismisses the gospel is pointless. It's useless. So how should we be saturated in the gospel message? Well, we could be saturated in the basics first. That God who created and owns everything is perfectly holy. And because he's holy, he requires obedience to his law. But mankind has broken God's law. And, and we will pay the eternal, eternal penalty for our sin because we can't save ourselves by good works. He doesn't accept them. It is not valid payment. And so Christ, who is God in the flesh, he came forth, came to the earth to demonstrate God's love by dying on the cross to pay sin's penalty for me. He rose again. He is alive today. And sinners must now repent of all that dishonors God. We must turn away from our sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he is my savior and that he is my master we must be saturated in the basics. But we should also be saturated in the intricacies of the gospel, the, the, the joyful details that we are saved by the grace of God. Romans 5, 8, that we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, that is the doctrine of election, that Christ provided atonement, the covering and payment of our sin. 1 Peter three eighteen that God gave us a divine calling in the deepest recesses of our hearts to call us to his kingdom and salvation. Romans eight twenty eight that we must be converted. We must turn from our sin and turn to Christ by repenting and believing the gospel. Mark 1, 15, that we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit as a new creation in Christ, that we are to be in union with Jesus Christ, unified with him in his death, in his resurrection, in his life, in his eternal destiny, that we've received justification from God by virtue of God exchanging your sin for Christ's righteousness and trading with you, that we're sanctified. It means we're set apart and made holy. We're sanctified in the past in our position before God. We're sanctified in the present by our obedience to God. And we're sanctified in the future by our perfection before God. And that no one can take away the salvation of the true believer in Christ. That we are preserved by God for all time and we will persevere in the faith. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5, John 10.29. And because of all of this, we will be glorified in the presence of God and all that Christ has will become ours. And how did we get that? By faith alone. And what's the result of the saturation in the gospel? You become zealous and fervent to share those truths with anybody who will listen and you can't help yourself. You can't help yourself. Oh, you know what I love? I love it when one of you tells me my friend or family member will be here on Sunday. Don't hold back. That lights a fire under me. Somebody says, you were yelling from the pulpit. Don't blame me, it was him. He said I was supposed to. 
Let's be an evangelistic church. Amen. Well, I started this series in the first message that a well-ordered church is one that the members know what to do and the leaders know what to do. Guess what? You know what to do now. You are now accountable for this information. And like the churches of Revelation 2 and 3, you and I together will be accountable to Christ for our faithfulness and obedience to him as members of his church. And don't think that you can leave Grace Bible Church to avoid that accountability. The Lord will call you to himself and say, you were there for 18 months. I'm going to hold you account to what you did during that time. So you're stuck with us one way or another. I don't know about you, but I want to be a church that receives a high mark from the Lord Jesus. Let's present to him a purified bride. Amen. Our Father, we come to you now excited to be a part of the work of the kingdom. It is because of the guarantee of Christ that he would build his church. It is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is because of the grand scope of redemptive history, which you set into motion long before the creation. The grand scope of human history, which first includes uh, the, the bringing of a Savior and now the building of a church and someday the consummation of all things into your kingdom, that we can have great confidence and joy that as we strive to be a church that is pleasing to the head, pleasing to our Master, to Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, that we know that we will be successful if we will obey him. And Lord, it is our joy, it is our hope to stand before God, to stand before our Savior as a church body and be able to receive the commendation, well done, good and faithful servants. Lord, that is our hope, that is our aim. And we do boldly pray, Lord, we know that even now, In Kern County, there are unbelievers who need to hear the gospel and we pray that you would would meet us up with them, you would match us up with them, that they would hear the gospel through the lips of these members, that you would bring them to grace, that you would bring the life-giving truth of Jesus Christ into their lives such that they could come to faith in Christ, become part of the church universal, become part of the local church, and that we would rejoice to see your kingdom grow as a result. Lord, I know that even in our own midst, there are those who have come to faith very recently, even in recent weeks. We give you praise and honor and thanksgiving for those precious souls whom you love so much, whose names you knew before the foundation of the world. We thank you. We praise you. We ask you, Lord, to light a fire under us to share the gospel with a dying world. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.